The National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, has a new plan to eliminate a big backlog of military service records requests. Delays in processing the requests have prevented many veterans from getting federal benefits they earned. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. All right, what's their plan for NARA? What are they going to do to get rid of this backlog? Well, the big thing here is they plan to eliminate the backlog of overdue requests by this December. NARA laid this out in a report issued uh, in late February. It projected a timeline for eliminating this big backlog as well as a strategy to avoid similar situations in the future. And, you know, this, these cases piled up during the pandemic when on-site staffing limits at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri, prevented staff from going to the center and processing these requests where many veterans' papers, like separation papers, are actual paper. They're not digitized quite yet, or they weren't at the time. And so there's this big backlog of requests that led to month-long delays in getting access to VA health care benefits, employment educational benefits, things like that. And so NARA was required to put together this plan under the latest NDAA, and now they're saying December is the date. And the status of the backlog, how big is it? What are we talking about in terms of scale, Justin? Well, as of the report, there are about 408,000 unanswered requests for military service records. That's a 33% reduction from the peak of 604,000 cases last March. So it's come down quite a bit. The backlog of overdue requests, that's those that haven't had a response in more than 20 days, sits at 338,000 cases. So a big chunk of that overall backlog is overdue still. Just amazing the fact that people are still running around aisles of files and grabbing paper records out of file cabinets and doing whatever they do with them. And the nominee to lead NARA, that had a Senate confirmation hearing the other day, and I guess that came up. Yeah, Colleen Shogun is the nominee to be uh, archivist of the United States, and she appeared before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee last week, said the backlog is one of her top priorities. If I am confirmed, I promise to make my first trip as archivist of the United States to St. Louis, to the National Personnel Records Center, to see the operations on the ground, to figure out where we can find efficiencies, to make sure that we are using contractual authorities uh, to the highest extent, to make sure that work gets done in an expeditious fashion, and also to explore any other creative solutions where we might be able to move that deadline up. Although ambitious, December 2023, I think we could all agree we'd like to have that sooner if possible. Well, I guess Ms. Shogun will have to become a samurai for getting rid of this backlog. And what about avoiding a buildup of a backlog in the future? Yeah, to your aisles full of files point, it's all about digitizing these paper records. The The National Archives says it's already working with the Department of Veterans Affairs to digitize those records. The VA is actually using funding from the American Rescue Plan to pull that off. And so that's a big deal. The Archives is also spending $600,000 in 2023 to transfer and maintain those digitized records from the VA. They're using the cloud workspaces and things like that to actually get those records transferred between the agencies. And then NARA also got $9 million from the Technology Modernization Fund to modernize its own case management reporting system that it uses to process these records requests so that agency employees can actually 
telework a little easier and access this system. It doesn't sound like a heavy lift in the world of digitizing records. I mean, it's only 400, 500,000, and maybe there's a lot of sheets in each file. But, you know, banks and so many financial institutions, different industries have digitized paper in large volume and converted them to PDFs that can be recalled with a code. That's old style. There's nothing leading edge about that. So it seems like a contractor could walk in with commercial product and mop it up if they just had the, the contract to let and the money to do it. Yeah, you would think. And I mean, it, it's kind of a classic case where, you know, you have two different agencies working on this. The VA holds the files. Uh, you know, of course, the Defense Department has some files. So you have a third agency in there and the NARA has a role to play. So a lot of it uh, just might come down to bureaucracy here. And by the way, in that hearing, the fire from 1973 did not come up where hundreds of thousands of Army records were lost. I once read that NARA has been spending 40 or 50 years painstakingly cross-referencing with the military to try and rebuild those lost forever records. That that didn't come up. That didn't come up, but you can certainly see where digitizing records uh, would avoid situations like that as well. Yeah, the great St. Louis fire that was just a disaster in terms of Army record-keeping generations lost there. And remote work at the uh, National Archives. Yeah, so the the, the folks at the National uh, Personnel Records Center couldn't work remotely during the pandemic. Uh, they didn't have digitized records, and that's kind of why this backlog happened in the first case. They are now putting the funding in place to upgrade the technology infrastructure at the center and at NARA more broadly to have telework opportunities. They actually have it in place. The the report I mentioned noted that NPRC staff responded to more than 4,000 requests working remotely recently during a weather emergency, uh, whereas prior to the pandemic, the center would have processed virtually no requests during that time. So it's already kind of paying off. Yeah, we'll have to delve into how they do that now technologically. If they do it by alphabetical or by year, then you've got, you know, it comes out of the file cabinet and it gosh darn better well go into the same slot it came out of or it'll never be found again. Whereas once something becomes a barcode, it doesn't matter what the filing order is. A robot can find the barcode and remember where it was filed. This is how libraries all work now. They don't alphabetize books. or They just remember the last place it got stuck back in the bowels and a robot does all that. Yeah. I mean, some of these processes are so complex that Humans became really, really good at it, and these longtime veterans at places like NARA became really, really good at it, and now you have to figure out a way to make computers really, really good at it. And by the way, was her hearing, Ms. Shogun's hearing, favorable? I mean, it looks like there weren't big opposers to her. She should get the nod eventually. Well, that's been a complicated story. She was actually nominated during the last session of Congress when there was a 50-50 split in the Senate and Republicans opposed her for some uh, tweets and past writings ah. that had uh, cast, as they put it, uh, some partisan uh, bent on her on her uh, potential role as archivist. But now that Democrats have a slight majority and they have one more seat on that committee, they could put her through uh, as soon as this Thursday during a business meeting. I don't know. If you have any thought that you might remotely have a chance of being nominated by an administration to a Senate-confirmed post, why would you not close your Twitter account? Well, actually, we might be going too deep down the rabbit hole. She did close her Twitter account. Republicans wanted a copy of those tweets. Uh, She declined to put those forward because it's her personal Twitter account. But uh, that's where we are with the archivist role. Interesting. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.